0: Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. And hello, listeners. This is the News Items podcast brought to you by iHeartRadio and The Recount. The podcast is based on my newsletter, News Items, which covers stories that we think are interesting, important, or both.
2: It's Thursday, May 6th. John, what do you want to talk about today?
0: First, I want to talk about Liz Cheney's op-ed today in The Washington Post. She doubled down on her criticism of President Trump and of Republicans who are indulging President Trump's insistence that he won the election. And we'll talk about the Winter Olympics in Beijing. There's a lot of pressure on corporate sponsors to withdraw their sponsorships in large measure because of human rights abuses under the Xi regime. What about you, Rebecca?
2: I want to talk about the new chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission who has warned that his agency may take a stronger role regulating the markets I also want to discuss a piece in The Economist online today that says that private equity is losing its mystique.
0: All right, let's get started.
2: First, science writer Nicholas Wade is out with a piece about the lab leak theory, whereby the virus behind COVID-19 escaped from researchers' hands in China. Readers reform their own opinion, Wade writes, but it seems to me that proponents of lab escape can explain all the available facts about SARS-2 considerably more easily than can those who favor natural emergence. Among other things, Wade points to the virus's unusual enhancements among this type of coronavirus, and the Wuhan Institute is known to engage in so-called gain-of-function research that could lead to such improvements.
0: This piece sort of crystallizes what a lot of people have been saying about the lab leak theory. He doesn't Mm -hmm. say definitively that the virus escaped from the Wuhan lab. But Mm -hmm. he makes a fairly strong case that, in fact, the virus came from the Wuhan lab. Mm -hmm. The investigations into this by the U.S. intelligence community, by intelligence communities all around the world, actually, is intensifying, and it's a marker, Mm -hmm. if you will. But people should read the piece. It's an important piece, and uh, it has already caught the attention of people on the intelligence committee Mm and in the U.S. Senate. It's an important piece.
2: Absolutely. Next, IBM has reached a new level of smallness in computer chip manufacturing—2 nanometers. Commercially available chips today at 7 nanometers are already about the size of a red blood cell. IBM says its tiny test chip could boost performance and also be much more energy-efficient, consuming 75% less energy. That would multiply your phone's battery life by four, IBM claims— John, is this just Moore's law at work? I know IBM cracked the 7-nanometer barrier back in 2015.
0: I'm not sure, uh, Mm -hmm. but I do know that it's a huge advance. So it will be tremendously exciting to the computing community, if you can put it that way. More important, it's going to increase our battery life on our phones. Mm -hmm. That's the key takeaway.
2: Yep. A factor of four. Looking forward to it. (laughs) Moving on then. For months, Representative Liz Cheney has been in a war of words against former President Trump for inciting the Capitol riot on January 6th and for his lies regarding supposed election fraud. Not surprisingly, House Minority Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Minority Whip Steve Scalise seem to want to strip her of her leadership position. On Wednesday, Cheney wrote an op-ed for The Washington Post, and she went for McCarthy's jugular. In it, she quotes McCarthy's own words from remarks he gave on the House floor on January 13th. Quote, the president bears Responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. End quote. Now McCarthy has changed his story, Cheney writes. John, what's the end game here for Liz Cheney?
0: I think Liz Cheney, in her sort of view of politics, the consent of the loser is enormously important in a democratic system. And so President Trump's refusal to concede. I think has irked her, and I think her father would look at it as a betrayal of public trust. Yeah. The end game, you know, if Liz Cheney takes a slice of the Republican Party with her, Mm -hmm. then the Republicans can't possibly win presidential elections. Mm -hmm. One, she'll garner enormous support in the mainstream media. She already has. I mean, two years ago, Liz Cheney couldn't buy a good story, and now she's a heroine. So there's that. And then there's a pretty strong group of Republicans, conservative Republicans, who are really dismayed by what President Trump has done and, more important, dismayed by Republican leadership going along with it. Uh Everybody said, well, she's going to lose her job, and mm-hmm. this is the end of Liz Cheney. But she walks away with 4 or 5% of the Republican vote. That's the end of that. Democrats okay. will win.
2: Do you mean she's in a strong position to run for president herself?
0: When I first watched all of this unfold, I thought, wow, she's running for president. On the theory that you could do a third-party And that that would generate a lot of excitement and a lot of enthusiasm. And if the Trump myth were to become undone, and, for instance, he went to jail, people would consider her to be someone to take seriously as a presidential candidate. Uh So it's not like she's going to run for president, but she's elevating herself nationally. And there are a lot of conservative Republicans who share her view. So... She's in a position to be very influential with that set of conservative Republicans where she might lead them, one doesn't know. So it's a threat, right? Yeah. It's a threat and it's one that they, seems to me, are mishandling remarkably. Yeah, It doesn't seem to me... <laughs> That difficult for Kevin McCarthy to say, you know, it's a big tent, and mm-hmm. you know, I disagree with Liz, but it's important to have all, you know, yeah. sort of standard political bullshit. And for some reason, they've gone like she's a heretic, and we got to burn her at the stake, and yeah. it's just, it's politically, it's crazy.
2: Yeah, yeah. So you said it politically, <laughs> <Yeah>. it's crazy. <laughs>
0: yes, but but we live in crazy times, so it's good that we do. Next up, things aren't what they used to be for private equity, and the private equity industry, I guess you'd call it. That's the argument made by The Economist in a post today. They write, by funding and reshaping companies, private equity generates wealth, jobs, and growth. It used to do so, though, while reveling in its bad boy image. It no longer has the option of being so politically incorrect. What about you, Rebecca? Rebecca. Is private equity really losing its mystique?
2: There has been this sea change in recent years, whether it's in the public markets or the private markets, demand in the investor community for sustainable investing metrics and ESG. I mean, these are demands on the part of institutional investors and retail investors alike. But in order to justify their higher fees, private equity has to demonstrate that they have better returns. And a big part of returns is, you know, looking at, you know, A, the ESG footprint, whether you have created value through sustainability initiatives in that, you know, embedded in that investment. Also, I mean, private equity is the original impact investment, right? If you are an investor in a private equity fund or vehicle, you have a lot more influence over the operations of that company. You can affect change, right? Right. Pretty directly compared to, you know, being an ordinary stockholder even if you're a sizable stockholder you can affect you have direct impact on the operating of that company for better or for worse i mean i think traditionally private equity has been associated with leveraged buyouts and a lot of job cuts and companies strip them and ship them or whatever you know <laughs> you know nowadays you can call that an impact investment by getting rid of parts of a company that don't work or are underperforming or, or you know are worth more elsewhere right i still Uh, cling to the naive belief that private equity, because that's where the money is and because the needs for transformation are so significant, that their powers can be used for good and not evil.
0: I I had a number of friends who were, you know, sort of early participants in the private equity world. And what they say is that there were so many companies that were mismanaged, were underperforming. It was a target-rich environment. Is there a target-rich environment today, or is there way too much money chasing way too few deals?
2: Well, I think it's both and, right? I mean, the fact that there's too much money chasing too few deals and that valuation multiples have been extremely high has made it harder for private equity to outperform public markets, according to recent evidence from Josh Lerner at the Harvard Business School, among others. I mean, that's put pressure on private equity. But let's talk about the purpose of private equity, as you alluded to earlier. They're in the business of dramatic transformations of companies where you can really sort of pull the curtain and make significant change at the company level. The kind of transformation that we're seeing in companies today is sustainable transformation. Companies moving toward, let's say, electrification or the greening of companies or, you know, changing their business processes along ESG-friendly lines. That is catnip to investors these days. And the kind of fund that has the capital to affect that kind of transformation is probably a private equity fund.
0: Right. Well, the the thing about the economist headline,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
0: has private equity lost its mystique? Yeah. Apparently not to investors. Yeah, private, indeed. Because private equity has never had as much money as it has today.
2: Yeah. KKR has raised its biggest ever buyout fund, $18.8 billion. So it's got to put that money to work. That is capital it needs to deploy. It's not just going to sit on it or do, you know, like – I don't know, share buybacks. I mean, it's going to make direct investments with that money. So they're raising a ton of money from investors. Investors want to see that money put to work. They think it's going to happen in private markets in a more compelling way than uh, in public markets in many instances. And so let's see what they got.
0: It sounds like their mystique is uh, holding up.
2: I think so. I think so.
0: Let's get to the next item.
2: Activists and human rights groups are pressuring corporate sponsors to pull out of the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing over the Chinese Communist Party's repression of the Uyghur people. Credible reports say there are well over a million Uyghurs in internment camps, and several governments around the world have said what's happening in Xinjiang is genocide. The Financial Times reached out to 13 of those sponsors. Eleven declined to comment, including Coca-Cola, Visa, and Airbnb, and two justified their continued sponsorship of the Olympics. John, what responsibility do corporate sponsors have here?
0: There will be an ever larger chorus of people who say that the Beijing Olympics are for Beijing a chance to burnish their image and present their view of how the world should work. And that to allow that to happen is not in the interest of U.S.-based corporations. It's not in the interest of EU-based corporations. It's not in the interest of democracies and that the human rights abuses are horrific and cannot be overlooked. Uh, So there's a vast apparatus that is going to be arguing that we should put politics aside and, you know, just let the games speak for themselves. But that'll be very, very difficult if Xi continues to... Pursue an aggressive foreign policy if they continue with the repression of over a million UGARs. And if it turns out that the pandemic was a direct result of an accident at the Wuhan lab and that China has lied about that for a year and many months. Can Coca-Cola withstand that for its brand? I, I think that will be tricky.
2: So at present, if we could put this in sort of game theory terms, we're looking at a coordination game between these sponsors, and no one wants to make the first move in terms of boycotting. But the withdrawal of one high-profile sponsor, maybe that has a cascading effect on the willingness of other sponsors to withdraw their commitments.
0: Yeah, I mean, 11 of the 13 refused to even comment to the Financial Times, yeah, which is sort of, let's stick our head in the sand and hope this passes, mm-hmm. which, I mean, that makes sense. But, you know, it's complicated. China's a huge market for all these companies. It's almost impossible for them to blow it off.
2: I mean, there is a, there's a kind of moral relativism among these sponsors uh, and the FT points out that Snickers, you know the Mars candy and food company, the Snickers brand is one of two non-Chinese companies who have a sponsorship deal specifically with Beijing as opposed to a multi-Olympic sponsorship deal under the IOC. So yes. Mars and Snickers have done the deal with Beijing directly, which it would seem to me looked at from that perspective perspective, there's plausible deniability from sponsors who made the deal with the IOC. They didn't know this. They didn't know that. They're just here to support the athletes, et cetera, as opposed to a company that is doing business with the regime directly.
0: That's the idea.
2: It is. All right. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the new SEC chair, Gary Gensler. He is no stranger to market regulations. He's got Citadel possibly in his crosshairs. We'll talk about it in just a minute. Okay, let's go to our next news item. Gary Gensler, the new chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission, will testify before the House Financial Services Committee today and say that large trading firms like Citadel could be limiting competition. He's directing his staff to look into the need for new regulations, and he's specifically mentioned payment for deal order flow.
0: Before we get to the specifics, give us a little bit about Gary Gensler.
2: He previously, under the Obama administration, headed up the Commodity Futures and Trading uh, Commission (CFTC), which basically regulates every other non-equity financial instrument that is traded in U.S. financial markets, including crypto nowadays. Although that wasn't a thing back in the Obama administration, so he is not a stranger to the plumbing of the U.S. financial or the global financial system. He's dealt with it in the commodity uh, in futures markets in the wake of the Great Financial Crisis, and now he is here to take a look at market structure in the U.S. stock market.
0: My understanding is that the financial services firms were not enthusiastic about his appointment. Is that right?
2: I'm sure they're not excited about regulators generally, right? I mean, that's (laughs) sort of... (laughs) Especially very canny and capable ones like Mr. Gensler.
0: So now that we have the brief on Mr. Gensler, what do we need to know about firms like Citadel Securities?
2: Okay, so here in the U.S., we have a very fragmented market, shall we say, for the trading of stocks. Pre-2000, thereabouts, or even pre-1990s, you know, if you had a stock order, your order was filled on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange or by a market maker at the NASDAQ, which would match buy and sell orders on the floor of an exchange, and then the trade would clear. Now a trade can be executed on any one of, let's say, 13 different venues. I believe the number is 13. And then reported to a trade reporting facility operated by FINRA, the Financial Regulatory Authority. And uh, trade commissions, due to technology, have come way, way down. Go on Robinhood, what have you, and you get commission-free trading. So how is it profitable for a company to fill your trade? It does so by selling the order volume further in the market, from, let's say, E-Trade or Robinhood to an app player like Citadel. So basically what you have is all of these actors competing for order flow, competing for volume. And one of the strategies that some of these market players, market participants have resorted to is paying for order flow. There's payments from exchanges to brokers, so companies that make a market in listed stocks, and payments from wholesalers to brokers. So a wholesaler can decide when it buys order flow from a broker, it can decide whether it wants to execute that trade itself or pass it along to an exchange where it will trade at at, a determined best market price with all the protections for investors therein so the thing is that Citadel is, quote-unquote, internalizing a lot of that order flow. They are executing a lot of those trades themselves. They themselves, Citadel, the company itself, says that it executes 47% of all retail U.S. stock trading volume overall. That's a lot. That's 47%. 47%.
0: Wow.
2: The information that is contained in order flow for a market participant that is that dominant is significant. They have valuable information on how U.S. investors are trading.
0: Especially when they have a hedge fund.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won't go there. <laughs> we won't go there. We're not going anywhere near that. No.
0: <laughs> and that concentration of power is essentially at the verge, at least, of a monopoly mm-hmm. and therefore more expensive.
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and right. probably not open to innovation, Right. So this sets up a big fight, right? I mean, SEC versus Citadel or, yeah. and others. How do you think that'll play out?
2: You know, he has instructed his staff to take a look at, you know, issuing some recommendations. Whether that will result in any regulatory action remains to be seen. Yeah. There is tremendous ferocity and, you know, backbiting... Among market participants, blaming this or that entity for why stock markets are the way they are and who's gaining this fraction of a second subpenny price advantage. I mean, business models will rise and fall on these kinds of hair splitting.
0: Right, 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 right. To
2: sit and listen to some of the specificities of these regulations will make your eyes glaze over and yet that is the plumbing of the US equity market. Is it too complex? Does it disadvantage retail traders who don't have access to super fast servers and super fast trade execution and inside information? Are they getting squeezed? It seems to me, I mean, the phrase from the 1920s, where are the customers' yachts, suggests that the little guy is always getting squeezed on Wall Street. So, you know, what What I think the takeaway here is that due to the fragmentation of U.S. equity market structure, money has been moved from one pocket to another, okay? It has migrated along with the order flow. So is this what information is being captured and exploited and are retail customers getting a fair shake i think that's what mr gensler is seeking to elucidate right. my view on it is that you know stock exchanges should be managed like public utilities they should not be you know listed companies where people get on a call every quarter and talk about you know where the volume was et cetera, et cetera. i mean these are they should function like utilities for the public good but this notion of payment for order flow that may i mean it's it's worth mentioning Gensler is going to say it in his remarks today that the U.K. and Canada don't allow that kind of market activity. They don't allow payment for order flow. So it's potentially a perverse incentive in the market that's, you know, led to some, you know, consumers may have, may not have gotten the best execution on their orders. He's also going to talk about gamification of financial markets and the way that tech-enabled nudges have maybe incentivized or sought to encourage uh, risk-seeking behavior on the part of retail market participants with less
0: sophistication. Information.
2: Well, right. l- less sophistication or less information than institutional traders, and how they may have been preyed upon by, let's say, hedge funds or other larger players in chat rooms like Reddit, et cetera.
0: And we can say fairly confidently that the retail yeah. investor will be last in line, so to speak. Always. Always good.
2: So that's it from us today. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast, which, of course, is based on John's newsletter, News Items. You can find that at newsitems.substack.com and go for the subscription version. He'll treat you real nice.
0: And for more insights on the global market of things, check out Rebecca's website. That's investableuniverse.com.
2: News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Biennemé, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Billy Gardella, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back on Monday with more of the news. See you then.